0: You're listening to Oh No Lick Class.
1: Mostly dead authors. Fresh takes.
0: Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Lick class the podcast that by any other name would smell as sweet i'm megan
1: i'm a rose
0: (laughs) Were you kissed by a rose
1: i'm rose on the gray jack
0: is it like you're flying both of
1: us can't fit on this (laughs) door
0: (laughs) it wasn't even a door actually it was like a piece of wall or or something i think it
1: was like a closet
0: it it wasn't like a door door
1: a door door a door door that wasn't jim morrison
0: he was not a door, he was in the doors.
1: So he was a door?
0: He was a member of a collective of doors, yes.
1: He was the first to die. Of the doors. See by the time the third one died, there were three doors down. Wow. That's the kind of comedy you expect <laughs> off the cuff. I don't know what class. I'm RJ.
0: You're my rose. You're my special desert rose. You're Ugh. about to there you go.
1: Desert rose whoa. <laughs> <Rose. laughs>
0: That's not how that part of the song goes, <laughs> but sure. Stang. That's, yes, <laughs> correct. Stang. <laughs>
1: you don't have to put the red light on. <laughs>
0: you just, get, like, just say a lyric, right?
1: <laughs> Tonight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to put on that red light. Although I can't even think of that as a police song anymore. All right, let's go. Come on, just, just Megan, crazy. let's okay, go. Okay, fine. You're, you started this. Today's a very special day, RJ. Do you know why that is? Pi Day? Nope. That was was a little while ago now.
1: Spring. Spring.
0: Spring. Uh, No, it's a special day because we are finally getting to a very special book. And that is Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Also, our Patreon is up. So that's pretty friggin' cool, too. And we'll have the link to that so you can go and be patrons. And Pledge and get things get exclusive stuff that is not available anywhere else you can get a poster that I made That's very cool and exclusive and and a bunch of stickers that you can't get in the store And also you'll be able to vote on what books we do next and also, we will just love you We'll love you forever, and you won't be able to stop it not even death will stop it on that note I've mentioned this book, I know, at least once before on on the podcast. I know we've referenced it for sure in our episode on Things Fall Apart, because the author of Things Fall Apart, Mr. Chenua Achebe, who we'll be discussing later on, has some feelings and opinions. And I have some feelings and opinions about Mr. Joseph Conrad and his book, Heart of Darkness, that I had to read three separate times. Good for you. And I kept getting rid of the book because I didn't want it. Once I was done with it, so I'd, like, sell it or ritualistically burn it or whatever. So I kept having to fucking buy it again. It's
1: like a Ouija board.
0: It was! It is! like a Ouija board. It's cursed. I had to read it in high school, or I hated it and didn't get it. I had to read it in college for my lit and film class, because we were watching Apocalypse Now. And I got it, but I still hated it. And then I had to read it again in grad school. And you know what? I still hated it. I see. How about you, RJ? I like it. No, you don't. Since yeah. when?
1: I don't know, I haven't read it. Apocalypse, that was okay.
0: How? How on earth did you make it through high school and college and graduate school for English without reading Heart of Darkness? It was never signed. It was no- so wasn't it wasn't even that you skipped it, you just never had to do the thing. Nah. You lucky motherfucker.
1: Read other stuff of Conrad. Like criticism or something.
0: Well, there's been a mountain of criticism. No,
1: but I mean criticism written by him.
0: Oh. Without even delving into, like, you know, all of the various controversies and things that people have written and is it racist? Is it not racist? How is it what are the feelings, the views, the the whatever's? How do we read this book? I think most people as you read it for school would say with great dislike. Because it's it's boring and the the main character, the, protect, the man telling the story is not interesting and not good at telling stories and I'm getting ahead of myself because I hate this book so much.
1: See, I'll say I'll break the fourth wall here. It's really not an act. I really haven't read most of these books that we talk about. But I do maybe dabble and try to read up a little bit on the ones that I haven't read, including this one. And the little bit I read, I was fine with.
0: Well, what part did you read? Here and there. Mm, here and there. Okay. Well, when you gotta go... when well, you, you, you gotta do the whole thing. It's just... It's not... is no. It's no. And it, it's one of those books that's on that sort of... This is really kid. how we
1: end the episode.
0: This is. All right, RJ. Tell me a thing about Joseph Conrad. You're
1: the one who picked the book.
0: I did, because I want to yell about it.
1: Joseph Conrad with a C was born Joseph. Theodore Conrad with a K... Korzanowski on December 3rd, 1857, and died August 3rd, 1924. Josie was born in Burchiv, Ukraine.
0: Josie, huh? Josie. I like that. It's fun. It's breezy.
1: Which was part of the Russian Empire at the time. Josie was the only child of Apollo Korzanowski and Iwa Bobrowska.
0: What? Okay, jeez. Okay. Uh, Bobrowska. Iwa Bobrowska. We'll do an English author next, I promise.
1: (laughs) Dad was a writer, translator, political activist, and a wannabe revolutionary.
0: And he looked like a pirate in his Wikipedia picture, and his name's Apollo.
1: You know the type. The types that wear the chaise shirts, smoke clothes, and talk about how the system is brainwashing and keeping the sheeple down, man. Bruh. That type. Josie was named after his maternal grandfather, Joseph. Shocker. His paternal grandfather, Theodore. And he got the name Conrad because that was the name of heroes in poems written by Adam Mikowitz, a Jewish Lithuanian poet. How about that field, huh? You, <laughs> want, you want to do a nice English author next? I think we need to crack open Jewish Lithuanian poets.
0: I'm sure it's a niche waiting to be explored.
1: Josie's family referred to him as Conrad. So in keeping with the Koronowski family tradition, I'll now refer to Josie as Connie. The artist formerly known as Josie.
0: Because that won't be confusing.
1: The town Connie grew up in, Birchiv, was predominantly Jewish. A countryside town that was owned by the Polish nobility to which Connie's family belonged. And also bared the coat of arms belonging to that.
0: <laughs> the Nalich. N- 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 n-
1: they, they bared coats of arms.
0: There were arms. There were coats. They bared.
1: The area in particular held on to its former Polish roots, having been part of the Polish kingdom not long ago. As such, many of the residents celebrated their Polish pride. Polish literature was hot in the area, especially Polish literature that was patriotic. Connie's family played a big role in Polish attempts to regain independence. Connie's grandfather, Theodore, was part of Napoleon's Russian campaign in an attempt to fight those damned Ruskis back towards the east. Connie's dad was part of social movements fighting for the reestablishment of Polish boundaries and advocated for land reformation, as well as the end of serfdom, which dominated the area. Due to the prescribed way of life, Connie's dad primarily attempted to farm and tried to have some stake in the land that the family occupied. However, being Poland and not having the most arid of landscapes, and because of his political activism, Connie's dad decided to move the small family quite often.
0: So, wait, you, you said they were a member of no, the nobility.
1: Kind of. Like, they had a coat of arms. Like, they weren't part of the nobility. The land was owned by nobility, but they had their own coat of arms, or they were kind of part of that. But they are also kind of rebels.
0: This was going on in the 1800s, huh? Yeah. Because this is, like, some, like, 1600s sounding shit.
1: Yeah? Oh, the serfdom was happening, so, like, yeah. the, they were working the land to live on it.
0: That's, damn... That's wild. So in
1: 1861, when Connie was four, the family moved to Warsaw, where Connie's dad joined a resistance group against the Russian empire. This got him and the entire family summarily arrested and imprisoned. They were kept in what was known as the Citadel.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: Not all that different from an internment camp. A year later, 1862, Connie and his family were exiled to Vologa, a place specifically known for its shitty climate. After a year of living in what was more or less hell on earth connie's dad had his sentence commuted and the family was allowed to move to a much better place cherniv ukraine things weren't all sunshine and patty cakes though as mommy connie developed tuberculosis in the middle of all this and it being the 1800s she died of tuberculosis not long after so now it was the connie and apollo show and apollo did his best Being a single dad raising a son in northern Ukraine back in the 1860s, he homeschooled Connie. He introduced Connie to books and literature. In particular, he made sure to devote a lot of Connie's education to Shakespeare and, of course, Polish romantic poetry. Of course. The two fit together very well. At the age of 10, Connie was brought by his father to live in an Austrian-held part of Poland, which had a bit of internal freedom and a degree of self-governance. The two settled in Krakow, the former capital of Poland. Again, maybe because of all the moves. This time it was Apollo who came down with Burke and summarily died.
0: Dad Burke.
1: Leaving Connie orphaned at the age of 11. Aww. Lucky for Connie, his mom had a brother.
0: No, a brother with a very <laughs> difficult name, apparently.
1: Taddeus Babrowski.
0: Oh, Ted, 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 oh, yeah, you know what, sure, Taddeus, why not?
1: Yeah, to Taddeus Bobrowski, who was willing to take Connie in. Now, being homeschooled and around parents who both died of tuberculosis, no shock here, Connie was in pretty shit health and also not the best student in the world when his uncle took him in. Even with tutoring, Connie was only good at one thing, geography.
0: That's a weird thing to be good at, like, as the sole person thing you're good at
1: <laughs> not really he's moved around his entire life so i mean just probably just trying to figure out where he was at any given moment gotta be pretty good with a map that's fair a cousin who lived in the house with connie said of him quote intellectually he was extremely advanced but he disliked the school routine which he found tiring and dull he disliked all restrictions at home at school or in the living room he would sprawl unceremoniously he suffered from severe headaches and nervous attacks Doctors decided the reason Connie seemed ill at the time was due to anxiety. I guess this is understandable when you were moved around non-stop, thrown in prison with your revolutionary dad for a bit, and watch both your parents die of consumption.
0: Might make you a little anxious, yeah.
1: The doctor's prescription? Some nice outdoor hard labor, as the fresh air will do him good and the hard work will toughen his wussy ass up. And hell, maybe he'll make a shekel or two to pay for his own child rearing.
0: Yeah, that's uh, some 19th century medicine for you.
1: None of this helped Connie become a better student, so (laughs) instead his uncle let that dream die and tried to steer him towards some sort of vocation. At the grizzled old age of 14, Connie decided he would become a sailor. And so, after a bit more work to toughen on up, once he hit the age of 16, his uncle sent Connie to France to live out his seafaring dreams. Despite not being the best student, Connie did know how to speak French fluently, and he apparently knew enough Latin, German, and Greek to get by as needed.
0: Yeah, yeah, just just enough to scooch by.
1: Now, biographers differ on how Connie saw this part of his life. Some biographers believe that Connie was happy to leave the idea of Poland and all of the turmoil it represented in his life behind. However, other biographers argue that Connie never fully did move on, In particular, they point to a letter Connie wrote to a family friend nine years after leaving Poland. I quote, I always remember what you said when I was leaving Krakow. Remember, you said, wherever you may sail, you are sailing towards Poland that I have never forgotten and will never forget. Remember me. Yeah, well, we'll see. Maybe this wasn't the actual truth.
0: When you remember your tragic past, remember me. Um, But what I was going to add is with the sort of cursory reading that I have done of Conrad's biography, I don't think he was happy a single day in his life.
1: Oh, we're going to get to that, too. So... Connie spent the next four years of his life either in France or on French ships. He then jumped ship literally and hopped onto a British merchant ship and served as a British merchant marine for the next 15 years of life. During his seafaring life, he worked from being a lowly apprentice and steward all the way up through the ranks of third, second, and first mate before eventually he achieved the rank of captain. So that's Captain Connie to you.
0: There you go. Good at boats. Boats.
1: During his time sailing as a British merchant marine, he became a British citizen on August 19, 1886 at the age of 29. However, despite becoming a Brit, he was still a Russian subject under Tsar Alexander III. It took him three years of petitioning to successfully renounce his Russian citizenship. It was on April 2nd, 1889, that the Russian Ministry of Home Affairs released, quote, the son of a Polish man of letters, captain of the British merchant marine, from the status of being a Russian subject. FREEDOM!
0: (laughs) Wow, you just blew the fuck out of the mic with that one.
1: Letters researched and archived by biographers from this period of time in Captain Connie's life show a marked change in his mindset as well as his writing. Whereas Captain Connie had written extensively and nearly exclusively in Polish before this point in life, these letters were written in English. The language in the letters is generally grammatically correct, but it reads as stiff, almost robotic. His phrasing and placement leads one to believe that he still heavily relied on Polish syntax and phraseology. Additionally, the Captain Connie, who had written earlier in life that he would always be sailing ever toward Poland, now had no hope for the future and felt only pain and hopelessness about the idea of an independent Poland. In 1890, after leaving the British Merchant Marines, he took up a three-year stint with a Belgian trading company. It was during this time he served as a captain of a steamer, a big pile of a steamer, that he captained along the Congo River. The time he spent serving on this steamer is what would later give rise to the heart of darkness. In 1894, at the age of 36, he gave up the boat life. It was partially due to illness, shocker. It was partially due to the dearth of ships in need of a Captain Connie steamer special. Gross. And it was partially now after steaming through the Congolese River that he was inspired to write. Yep, just like that. At the age of 36, he decided one morning he wanted to have a literary career. So he decided to drop hot steaming bits of Captain Connie on sheets of paper for all to read for eons to come
0: You just had to describe it that way, huh?
1: His early writing was questioned by friends and allies for his ability to write in English He was still not all that comfortable writing or speaking in the language And some people found his way of writing to not be the most pleasant to read Mm. Like like Megan Mm
0: Mm-hmm, how about that?
1: Hey, keeping immigrants down
0: Uh down yep. maybe he shouldn't have written the book in his third language maybe he should have written in polish and then like someone could have translated it there are plenty of great translated works of literature he's writing in his third <laughs> language it's stiff it's awkward it's robotic <laughs> as as i imagine anyone attempting to write a book in not only like not their native language but like two languages removed so, so
1: we could celebrate him for trying <laughs> don't let that dream die Others believed his background was unique and thought what Captain Connie was doing was worthy. Much like his later works, his earlier works were set in locations such as Borneo and Congo. Because of his background, he did not believe he would be able to compete for Anglophone readers, as he did not have the shared cultural background as native Brits. Thus, he chose to set his works abroad in places he experienced during his sailing years. Additionally, since he had so few Anglo friends and was not rooted in the culture, he felt free to mock and criticize colonization as he saw it. His works were generally published in serial format in newspapers and magazines. Captain Connie struggled to make ends meet throughout most of his life, until 1910 at the age of 53 when he was awarded a government pension of 100 pounds a year. Not exactly the big bucks, but it helped. Captain Connie was known to be a very reserved and dour man by those who knew him best. He was not one to show emotion. Even in his novels, his characters only portrayed emotion through either skepticism and or irony. Life never got any easier for Captain Connie. He suffered from gout, recurrent bouts of malaria, nerve damage throughout his body, and oh yeah, had to have all his teeth removed. Excuse me? Which was good since he had a known phobia of dentist.
0: Well, that takes care of that, I guess. Why do you have to have all his teeth removed?
1: Oh, I guess it could have been the malaria, the gout. I don't know. All right. Well, no, you know what it was? It's because he has a phobia dentist. He wasn't all that big on oral health care.
0: Ah, so So it's kind of circular. So, yep, that's what happens.
1: When the first biography of Captain Connie was published, a newspaper reviewer joked that the biography should be titled 30 Years of Debt, Gout, Depression, and Angst.
0: It's not inaccurate.
1: Captain Connie was never really known to have much of a romantic side. He was certainly no Daddy Dumas, but then again, who can be?
0: Like, literally, who could possibly have the stamina?
1: Captain Connie was generally known to have a few close male friends who were strictly friends, but when it came to female companionship, all that seems to be known for sure is that he was married and had a few kids. The woman he was married was 16 years his junior and was known as a working class girl that was, as biographers phrased, quote, unsophisticated. The few friends, Captain Connie, the few friends that Captain Connie had were surprised he would marry such a woman and were not shy about making her the target of disparaging remarks. However, biographers credit her, her name being Jesse George, thank you, for being a, quote, straightforward, devoted, quite competent companion for who there can be no doubt helped sustain Conrad's career as a writer, which may not have been nearly as successful without her presence. Wife Jessie often found Captain Connie to be a bit quirky and odd, being an English woman herself and him, very not much an English man. Eventually, the family moved to Poland after World War I broke out and Poland was on the verge of becoming independent again. It was then that Jessie said of her husband, quote, I understood my husband so much better after those months in Poland. So many characteristics that had been strange and unfathomable to me before took As it were, their right proportions. I understood that his temperament was that of his countrymen. The family did not stay in Poland for long as Captain Kanye decided it was best for him to go back to England and drum up sympathy for Polish independence. Eventually, he would see the day Poland achieved its independence in 1918 at the conclusion of World War I. He would live out his remaining years in England much like he lived his earlier years, sick and stoic. He died August 3rd, 1924, and was buried in uh, the Canterbury Cemetery. His headstone had a series of misspellings on it, as he meant to be buried under his original Polish name. Oh boy. Instead, they anglicized it and completely butchered the spelling, making him Joseph, Theodore, Conrad with the Sea, although they saw the last name Korzanowski correct. Figures. <laughs> and Ms. Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which he had chosen as the epigraph to his last complete novel, The Rover is what was put on the headstone sleep after toil port after stormy seas ease after wear death after life doth greatly please
0: such a fun guy
1: yep the (laughs) end
0: Oh, also, there's one thing you didn't mention that I wanted to throw in there, actually. There's a quote that I found of someone talking about when Conrad had explained why he did not write in Polish and why he was writing in a third language that he wasn't as good at at, at conveying his thoughts. And he says, quote, I value too much our beautiful Polish literature to introduce it into my worthless twaddle. But for Englishmen, my capacities are just sufficient. They enable me to earn my living. These Englishmen will read whatever garbage I write in their dumb language.
1: <laughs> he really, uh, talking the English, right? Just
0: a fun guy. Yeah, no, I mean, for all that I'm gonna give this book shit for being, like, racist and, and other such issues, is definitely not pro-English, or really just Western Europe in general, but we'll get to that. The, the book is the is source of great controversy because of those reasons, and it's, it's been lifted up as part of the classic literary canon, and you have all of these books of all of these people with different criticisms and interpretations of it, and part of that is because it's really vague and ambiguous. And of course the question is, is it because of genius or something else? I have opinions, but before we can talk about all of that, we kind of have to talk about the book itself. And the contents thereof. So the novella, really, like, it's it's only a novella, which I, when I came back to I was like, really? what? Because I remember it being like a thousand years long. But no, the novella, as she is written. So the frame of the story is these five British dudes chilling on a boat temporarily docked due to flooding on the River Thames. And there's the captain, the lawyer, an accountant, the fourth guy, who's going to be our actual protagonist, and our narrator, who we never learned anything about, and might as well be like, I don't know, M- Mr. Bean. Could they never say he's not Mr. Bean? So let's make believe Mr. Bean's our narrator on this sausage fest of a British pleasure cruise, because trust me, we're going to need the levity in imagining him reacting to what's coming. So have that in your mind, just picture, how would Mr. Bean react to hearing this story told? Okay. So Mr. Bean and the other upright uh, they're hanging out doing what British people of the time did best, reminiscing about how fucking great it is to be British and how this river was once filled with explorers and adventures and blah, 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 blah. Then uh, one of them stands up and is like, hey, you know what this rousing nautical chill sesh needs? A sobering tale of the evil that lurks in men's hearts and also jungle madness.
1: I do it at Disney. It's called Jungle Cruise. (laughs) Yeah,
0: you stand up on the Jungle Cruise and you go, all right, guys, you ready to hear a story about murder and and craziness and existential horror? And then the the Disney employee on the Jungle Cruise says a pun at you? Yeah. So this guy is Marlo. And yeah, he's about to bum everyone the hell out when he decides to regale his buddies with the time he sailed into the heart of the dark continent by getting a job with a Belgian ivory trading company that's just called the company cuz it's sort of monolithic and capitalized like the circle yeah like like that like that thing
1: the way to steal a tom hanks
0: God, tom hanks cuz you wrote the circle also <laughs> we're just in it um Anyway, Marlowe was super fascinated by maps of Africa and the Congo River as a kid, and that's as good a reason as any to apply for a job with the company as a steamboat captain. So once I'm done talking about this book and we go into this whole thing about whether or not uh, we can take Marlowe as Conrad and the author, narrator, and all that fun stuff, remember this. Remember that Marlowe is a a guy who likes maps and geography and is going to sail the Congo in a steamship. He gets the job, because the original captain dies in a fight with some African natives over two chickens. Yeah. Yeah? (laughs) This doesn't really deter Marlow at all, and he goes to Belgium to sign a contract with the company. Excuse me, with the company. At their offices are two old ladies, uh, knitting and and being creepy like an elderly version of those twins from The Shining, and there's also a doctor who gives him a checkup and measures his skull and says that it's a shame he only gets to examine the men who go to Africa and not the ones who come back, because he's just super interested in seeing how they change on the inside. Syphilis. (laughs) Probably more malaria. Malaria? Malaria. So once that's done, Marlo swings by his aunt's house because... She had used some kind of pole that she had to help him kind of get his foot in the door at the company, and she's like, oh, I'm so proud of you and your special boat job, and I know you're going to go do good work and civilize those terrible, awful savages. And Marlo's like, auntie, I'm I'm not there to be a missionary, I'm going to help ship harvested elephant parts, so maybe tone it down a little. And now it's time to hop aboard a boat and get to Africa, Eventually. After like a month or so, he reaches what's known as the Outer Station, which is a shit heap where everything's falling apart and starving slaves are being made to dynamite a cliff for no apparent reason. The chief accountant of the station is dressed like a foppish English dandy, even though they're in Africa where it's so hot even their thoughts are sweaty. And Marlowe is stuck there for 10 days while he waits for a caravan to take him further. The outer station accountant is the first guy to mention Kurtz, as in, Oh, you're going to the interior? Well, then I dare say you'll be meeting Mr. Kurtz, a solid chap who's just really, really good at ivory, however that works, and is destined for great things within the company. And when you see him, please, God, don't tell him how bad I've let things get here. Uh, Marlo's just like, okay, whatever. Which is gonna be Marlo's response to most things because Marlow is the world's most passive and uninteresting narrator, because Conrad just wants to be ironic and critical of everyone without having to actually take any kind of stance or position. So Marlow is just the cardboard cutout experiencing different bullshit and... Yeah. Getting ahead of myself again. Sorry. So Marlow finally catches- Can't
1: give a fair reading, can you?
0: No, I can't. Uh... That says
1: more about you than anything else.
0: I'm not teaching it to students, um, I'm reading it into a microphone. No one, no one has to try to pass him a class. Marlow finally catches a caravan for a 15-day journey to the Central Station, during which people fall ill and conscripted natives wander off because they're, you know, just as bored of this as I am. So Marlow gets to the Central Station where things are a little, shall we say, Kafkaesque, even though Kafka is born at this point, but definitely not writing things yet, so th- things technically can't be Kafkaesque yet, but I can't think of a better word to describe it. So first off, Marlowe's boat that he's supposed to sail down the river, it's sunk. There's reasons. Repairs? Maybe someday. And the central station is in as bad a shape as the outer station it is mostly just filled with white European dudes hanging around with nothing to do except abuse their slaves and gossip. There's a dude who's only referred to as the brickmaker, even though he never makes any bricks, because there are no materials available with which to make bricks. So instead of making bricks, the brickmaker, who's still defined as his role as a guy who makes bricks even though there's no bricks to make, ugh, mostly just talks. A lot. Before we even get to tackling the racism stuff, we can at least agree that Conrad has some opinions on Western European bureaucracy. Obviously. He thinks it's dumb.
1: That's so racist.
0: That's not We're good (laughs) to those Brits are doing the best they can. I don't think you can be racist against the white Brits.
1: He's Polish. Yeah. That's how
0: Well but racism is also indicative of positions and systems of power.
1: Yeah, Look. Hey, the, the Brits really aren't in power around there, huh?
0: <laughs> not not around there, but, which is kind of a, well, that's kind of <laughs> kind of the, out of control. That's kind of the point he's making. So what
1: you're saying is Africa's racist towards the Brits instead of taking them in as equals? Yes, sticking that's their it. ships.
0: Yep, Af- Africa is racist towards British people. So the brick maker talks to Marlowe a whole whole bunch about shit that's so boring that Marlowe. Starts... I call him the
1: Cleveland Steamer,
0: making bricks. How many more poop jokes you got in you?
1: Congolese crapper.
0: I hate you. Um,
1: <laughs> Congolese crap cutter. How about that?
0: That's just the same thing, except you added another it's word. Some alteration, right? Yeah, oh yeah. So the brickmaker is telling Marlo stuff that's really boring, and it's so boring that Marlo is tuning him out. Like, Marlo says, you know, I just stopped listening. And if the man telling the story is saying, like, yeah, this got so dull that I just drifted off mentally. Why would we want to hear that? Why am I being blessed with this boring conversation? Hmm? He tunes back in when the brickmaker mentions Mr. Kurtz, who's already starting to get very mythic, at least to Marlow, as he collects all this secondhand information about him. Although actually, the brickmaker pretty much just parrots the dude from the outer station. Kurtz is smart. Kurtz is charismatic. Kurtz is good at ivory. Kurtz is pretty, and he smells nice, etc, etc.
1: It's true. Marlo and Brando? Something else.
0: <laughs> we're gonna get to that. Then Marlo stops narrating, and we're back in the present on the boat in England, so he could tell us, like, man, everything was just so dreamlike and unreal, you know? Which is Conrad saying, hey, look, there's the reason why all my descriptions are really vague and ambiguous. It's because everything was dreamlike. Which would not fly in a college writing workshop, but then half the shit most of the authors we talk about on this show have pulled wouldn't fly in a college writing workshop. So, there's that.
1: Maybe there's a problem with college writing workshops.
0: <laughs> Maybe. Either way, Marlo's stuck at Central Station for three agonizing months, during which he watches white dudes commit casual atrocities on their native slaves. Just like, wow, those sure are some atrocities. Africa just does things to men, huh? It's almost like we're the real savages, after all. I should probably do something about this. But instead, I will continue to think profound thoughts about how little owning another human being and beating him to death matters against the vast existential emptiness of the African jungle.
1: So, wasn't that how people saw Brits at the time? They were Brits die in the street. What did they possibly think about atrocities elsewhere? They were like this 19th century Canadians. What? Oh, that's bad, eh? Well, <laughs> someone should do something about that. Oh, boy. Oh, boy.
0: Those, those really aren't Canadian accents. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's pretty cross, eh? Oh, no,
0: not really. <laughs> it's this whole vibe of like, wow, the things these guys are doing are terrible, but I think it's because of Africa. I think Africa's making them do it. Yeah? Yeah. Like, we're awful, and Africa is exposing the awfulness. Really, Africa is the bad guy here.
1: That's kind of like... Not not
0: necessarily the Africans. They're They're just another victim of Africa, which I don't even want to begin to have to try to unpack... Uh, At some point, some random Adventure Raider guys show up, all Alan Quartermain and shit, and Marlo overhears one of them chatting with the Central Station Chief about how they're jealous of how influential Kurtz is within the company, and this weird story about how Kurtz journeyed all the way up the river to deliver his ivory, and then went like, fuck it, and turned around and went back. Almost as if he turned his back on Western civilization. Marlo seems to think it's a noble move for whatever reason, and is very quickly started to get a pretty hefty boner for a dude he's only heard about from other people. Anyway, the other guys continue on to say that it doesn't even really matter, because rumor has it, Kurtz is maybe dying of jungle illness, or something. Probably malaria. The raiding crew leaves, and a short time later we get the message that all of the crew's donkeys have died, which is meant to imply that everyone in the raiding crew is also dead. But then, like, why not just say that? I don't, I don't know. Their donkeys well, are dead.
1: And if there ain't no ass, you best be grass.
0: That's what they say.
1: Yep. <laughs> Your ass is grass.
0: And soon, so so will you.
1: Hey, there's nothing to fuck now. It's a real tragedy.
0: Mm, all right. That's that's where we ended. We made it about bestiality. But whatever. Marlow's ship is finally fixed, and we can get this goddamn show on the road. Or the river.
1: Get to the donkey Whichever. show.
0: Yep. Marlowe describes the journey as going backwards through time to the primitive, prehistoric earth. He sees native people watching him from the shoreline and has, quote, this suspicion of their not being inhuman, which is some fun verbal gymnastics. Not human, mind you, just, you know, not inhuman. What a guy. Also, the natives working on board the ship are cannibals, apparently. But it's okay, because they're good cannibals, and they stick to eating rotten hippo meat instead of people. But yeah, you know, you can't have a story about being in an exotic land with some exotic people and not have those people be cannibals, obviously. Just ask Herman Melville and Rudyard Kipling and Robert Louis Stevenson and that jackass who wrote The Coral Island. Yeah. etc. Anyway, midway to the interstation, the boat gets attacked and enveloped in a thick fog. Members of the crew fire rifles into the fog, but it doesn't seem to do much, and then the helmsman gets speared to death and bleeds out all over Marlow's shoes, and Marlow actually freaks the fuck out, which is like, okay, yeah, fair, that would do it. He, he has an emotion. <laughs> they manage to steer the boat away and escape, but for whatever reason, Marlow decides that this attack must mean that Kurtz is dead. Your guess is as good as mine as to why it means that...
1: The donkeys are dead.
0: <laughs> the donkeys are dead. Kurtz is dead. Marlo's very bummed that he'll never get to hear Kurtz's voice, which is sort of interestingly, weirdly specific. Like, he doesn't want to see him. He doesn't want to touch him. He, he might want to touch him. But he wants to hear him speak. What does he even want him to say? Like, who knows? I don't know. Marlo probably doesn't even know.
1: Howdy, partner.
0: <laughs> what?
1: It's me. Kurtz. <laughs> How you doing, pilgrim?
0: Hey, how's it going, pilgrim? Wait, why is...
1: Don't they call each other pilgrims or something in this thing?
0: Well, the, the some of the travelers are described as pilgrims because they're going on a pilgrimage.
1: How you doing there, pilgrim?
0: Pilgrim. Why is Kurtz John Wayne now instead of Marlon Brando?
1: I'm called the Duke. <laughs> I died with 40 pounds of feces in my intestines.
0: <laughs> what the
1: you don't know that about John Wayne.
0: What? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? John Wayne Yes, John Wayne, the actor. When
1: he died, he had forty pounds of shit in him. He was, what? He was really constipated.
0: What did he die of? Did he did he die of something related to the fact that he wasn't pooping? <laughs> okay. This isn't real. This is making this up. 40 pounds? <laughs> that's like, a, that's a child.
1: When they did the uh, autopsy on John Wayne, he had 40 pounds of impacted fecal matter.
0: How are you Can you imagine, like, okay, let's say he weighed, what, like 200 some odd pounds? <laughs> yeah. Do, do do fractions for me real quick. 20%. 20% of his body weight was poop. Why? What'd he die of?
1: Oh, that's a... Some people say this is not true. Oh, fake news. Oh, I'd like to believe oh, fake news. That
0: means you just found it and it said it's not true and you fucking lied to me.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't know who's telling the truth. You
0: got now. me all on a laugh. Now
1: there's a debate.
0: over over the, There's a debate over how much poop was inside <laughs> John Wayne when he died.
1: Well, and here we go. Why it is there it was rumored there was 40 pounds of impacted feces in his colon.
0: Rumored. What did he die of? You're not answering the question. Why, uh, why would there be any sort of plausibility to this?
1: Uh, stomach cancer. Yeah, that's messes with it, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, that would fuck some things up down, down there in that area.
1: I'll stick with the rumor.
0: Yeah, you want to believe?
1: <laughs> I want to believe.
0: <laughs> Keep dreaming that dream, Mulder. This this got really weird. How the fuck did we end up here? Talking about how much poop may or may not have been inside John Wayne's colon when he died.
1: Howdy, Pilgrim. (laughs) I gotta take a crap.
0: Really bad. Well, Marlo's never, as far as he knows, he's never going to get to hear those words. (laughs) Those very specific words.
1: Howdy, Pilgrim.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, we got that. And at that point, he loses interest in his own goddamn narrative and stops the plot.
1: Wait, wait, I, I have an update. <laughs> what what Snopes says is false isn't that he had 40 pounds of feces in him. What's false is that the allegation is he had 40 pounds of feces in him because he ate red meat. Red meat does not cause uh,
0: constipation. constipation.
1: That's what's false. Snopes does not say the 40 pounds of feces is false. Just not, that, it's not because he's been eating a lot of steak.
0: That's, th- thank you for clearing that mystery up.
1: So the rumor is not denied by Snopes.
0: <laughs> oh boy, all right. Um... <laughs> Yeah, he stops the plot to tell the other guys. Yeah, well, just boat. like that shit got stopped. Yes. It's calling. Yep. About how women exist in some alternate fantasy world where they never have to think about real things. Because, cool, you know, I was wondering when we'd get to enjoy some sexism in there as well. Gotta keep things fresh. Gotta keep them spicy. Uh, we learned that Kurtz had a fiancé who's only referred to as his intended because why should a woman get to have any kind of identity outside of the man she's going to belong to? After verbally stumbling around for a while... He then mentions that he also read a report that Kurtz wrote, at some point, outside of the main plot here, that was commissioned at the behest of the International Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs. In it, Kurtz says that if white men can make the African natives think that they're gods, then they'll basically be able to do whatever. Marlow tells us that Kurtz's writing is eloquent and powerful and, sure, whatever you say, dude. Except for this little handwritten bit at the end, which is literally just, P.S., EXTERMINATE THE BRUTES! Oof. Marlow says that this uh, enthusiastic punchline to the report represents Kurtz having been, quote, absorbed into native life, and that when he wrote this, he had basically, if you'll pardon the phrase, gone native. Which is weird and confusing. He decided that all savages need to die in order to be handled because Africa had turned him savage? I don't know. This might be a a failure of grasping things on my path and not Conrad's. There you go. I'm giving him some wiggle room. This might just be a thing that I'm missing because I don't get that. Or is Marlo like just trying to make excuses for like his mystery man crush because he really doesn't want to believe that Kurtz is is a bad dude? Because he's kind of clinging to Kurtz as like this sort of ideal because all the other people around him are so shitty. So he really wants to believe, just just like you want to believe about the poop inside John Wayne.
1: 40 pounds of it. Big four, (laughs) Shira.
0: Oh, jeez. Hey, look, we're at the interstation. Thank God. Uh, They sail in and they find the station basically as fucked up looking as the other two and are greeted by a Russian trader who's only referred to as the Harlequin because Kurtz and Marlowe are the only people in this novel allowed to have names. He's called the Harlequin because his clothes are entirely made of patches like a jester's outfit. He says he came to Africa as a young man looking for adventure and has been in Africa for two years, which is too long. Basically, he's a little nuts. He tells Marlo that the natives that attacked the boat before didn't really mean any harm. They just didn't want the boat to get to the station because they think it's going to take Kurtz away and they really don't want Kurtz to leave. He tells Marlo that Kurtz has enlarged his mind and other weird shit that sounds like something someone in a cult would say. We get the impression that Kurtz keeps the Harlequin around so that he always has a rapt listener nearby. The Harlequin goes on to say that Kurtz really does need to leave, actually, though, because he has unspecified jungle illness, and while the Harlequin had nursed him through a couple bouts of it, he thinks this might be it. At this point, we've walked close enough to the station building that Marlow can see what he originally thought were, like, ornamental knobs of some kind on the tops of the fence surrounding the building are not ornamental knobs of some kind, but actually... People. Yes. Specifically, their heads.
1: Shrunken heads. no. Pinballs. No. Eyeballs. What? I'm not sure what we're doing here.
0: Is skulls. Is people skulls. Okay. There's people skulls on sticks. African skulls, specifically. How does he know? I don't know. Well, the Harlequin, to be fair, backs it up and says that they were rebels. Native rebels. To Marlo's credit, this pretty much kills his Kurtz boner. Um, he's repulsed specifically by how these skulls symbolize a quote, lack of restraint on Kurtz's part. Make of that what you will. And then when the Harlequin tries to insist that, like, no, these, these were rebels, it's cool, it's fine, Marlo straight laughs in his face, like, come on, really? You dumb idiot. You're dumb. You think Kurtz isn't a homicidal nutjob. I never thought that. I knew he was bad all along. I'm not crying, you're crying. The crew emerges from the station, holding a stretcher on it, and it's Kurtz. Like Moby Dick. After hearing all this shit about him, we finally get to see him, and he, he don't look good. He's gaunt and pale and sickly and just very edge-of-death looking. Just a wisp of a man, which is why they picked Marlon Brando to play him in the movie.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) The surrounding natives start wailing and shit, but Kurtz signals for them to stop, and then they do, and they bring him on board the ship. On the shore, Marlowe sees a beautiful native woman looking sad, who is apparently Kurtz's mistress. She's just there to look exotically, wildly pretty, and also sad. Meanwhile, the manager on the boat has finished talking to Kurtz in private and tells Marlow that Kurtz has been gathering ivory through, quote, unsound means. What the hell does that mean? Was he fucking the elephants? What's a sound means to gather ivory? I just don't know what that means. Like, he was gathering, he was gathering ivory through unsound means. He's fucking the elephants. Maybe. To be fair, though, this also just might be another veiled English way of saying that Kurtz is cuckoo bananas. Because he also follows it up with, like, dude, it's clear that Kurtz went fucking buck wild out here, so we're gonna shut this shit down, and when we get back to Europe, he is obviously fired. Now, okay, so Marlo clearly agreed that there was fucked up shit going on. Like, he saw the heads on the sticks, but...
1: But
0: But he's so mad at what he views as the manager's hypocrisy because they're all just bad people too and they're before the insanity-inducing isolation of the African jungle go they that he fucking takes Kurtz's side out of spite. He goes, yeah, well, well, maybe you're unsound. I think Kurtz is remarkable. I might still have a crush on him, maybe. And the manager's just like, dude, what the fuck? And Marlo wakes up around midnight to find that Kurtz has disappeared. Luckily, because he's horribly ill and crawling on all fours, dude hasn't gotten very far, and Marlo finds him pretty quick. Kurtz is sad that he's a crazy failure, and Marlo's like, Nah, people in England think you're hot shit. Let's get back on the boat. No one needs to know you wantonly murdered lots and lots of people. And he does. And as they sail away, Kurtz's native mistress is standing on the shore looking very sad, and Marlo's like, Wow, she really thought she was Kurtz's wife or something like a person would. Crazy. As they journey back down the river, Kurtz is dying and wants Marlo close so that he has someone to listen to him so he can keep feeling special or something, and Marlo's just really disappointed that most of the stuff that Kurtz has to say is childish and inane, and I don't know what he was expecting, but oh well. Kurtz goes blind, talks about how he's, you know, in the darkness even when he's in the sun, because metaphors, and he tells Marlo, like, tell my story, whatever. Story that may be. And then utters that famous line,
1: Well, bye. He
0: looks Marlo dead in the eyes and says, Well, bye. And then just fucking dies. That would have been so much better than what he actually says.
1: The horror. The horror.
0: Yeah. He says, the horror, the horror. I, don't know, I really wish he just said, "Well, bye."
1: Yolo. Swag.
0: Yolo, bitch.
1: Yolo, swag.
0: Yolo, swag. Four
1: twenty sixty nine. XXX.
0: Smoke weed every day.
1: Remember me.
0: <laughs> Never no. forget me, Jack. Uh. So then Kurtz dies, and then marlo catches jungle fever. But not like that. He gets real sick. And he's sick the whole way back to England, which is great, because then we don't have to read about it. Back in civilization, Marlow can no longer deal. Whether that's because of, like, PTSD, or because he too has been ruined by Africa and sees society for what it really is. Empty. and Full of phonies. Except for Marlow, of course. Eventually, he tracks down Kurtz's intended, and in case you were wondering, yes, she's a thoroughly sheltered, ditzy woman who loved Kurtz so much but never really knew him at all, etc., etc. That's stereotypical bullshit. And she asks Marlow what Kurtz's last words were. And because men are the arbiters of deciding what women can and cannot handle and do and do not get to know, he lies and says, y- Your name? Not that we ever learn her fucking name. What <laughs> his last words? YOLO swags smoke weed every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thus does Marlo's weird rambling story about sailing around Africa to find a murderous lunatic come to an end. The guys on the boat note that the tide is coming in and that Marlo has thoroughly killed the mood. Our narrator, Mr. Bean, looks out at the water and sees only the heart of an immense darkness. Worst yacht party ever. The end. And that's Heart of Darkness. Yep. Yep. Heart so dark, motherfuckers want to find me. So adaptations of The Heart of Darkness. Orson Welles uh, adapted and, of course, starred in a radio play version of the book in 1938. And had planned to do a film ad- adaptation as well. But it never happened, in part due to issues with funding. And also because Welles wanted to do the whole thing literally filmed through Marlowe's eyes. Like in a first-person POV. Also, something that's kind of interesting but uh, also maybe lazy, I don't know, depending. You want to talk about poets. The poet Yeda Morrison, in 2012, he released a book called Darkness that erases all of the text in Heart of Darkness except for the bits about nature, just the descriptions of, like, natural things. So only, only the natural world remains. He whites out all the other interest in uh, instances of people and characters and dialogue and, and everything, which is interesting, but I'm not 100% sure what it, what it does, what the point is. Poets be poeting. The video game Far Cry 2 is a sort of modernized, kind of loose adaptation of uh, the book where you're a mercenary in Africa going to kill some dude who's essentially Kurtz, and the final section of the game is in fact called The Heart of Darkness. And then, of course, the most well-known adaptation is the film Apocalypse Now by Francis Ford Coppola. The movie is really more inspired by than anything else. Because aside from just swapping out the Congo for the Vietnam War and colonial imperialism with American interventionism, the story itself is pretty different overall. And so you you have seen Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I have. (laughs) Other than that, the main character's called Willard instead of Marlowe. and he's played by Martin Sheen, and he's sent deeper and deeper into Vietnam to find a special forces officer named Kurtz, played by Marlon Brando, who's apparently gone insane. It would, in a way that it is similar to Heart of Darkness is that it's one almost as many awards as it's drawn like criticisms and that people go back and forth on well is it an anti-war movie or a pro-war movie because apparently they show the bit where all the helicopters are getting ready and like flight of the valkyries is playing two soldiers to like get them amped up so that's kind of interesting really now it's probably more remembered for just the nightmare of a production which included a five-month shoot taking two years to complete. Typhoons destroying the sets, Martin Sheen having a heart attack, and Marlon Brando being excessively fat to the point of only being able to shoot him from the neck up and having to get a body double for the rest. The horror. <laughs> the horror.
1: The
0: horror. <laughs> it's just so fat. I mean, it works because he's supposed to be in shadow and the focus is on his voice in the book. So the fact that they have to have Marlon Brando as shadowed and unseen as possible worked to their advantage. Uh,
1: how much impact did Fecal Matter do you think he had?
0: I really don't want to think about that. I was like what, I think like nineteen or twenty when we watched it in class and that's the only time that I I saw it, and we watched the director's cut, and it was long as all hell, and I I don't recall finding sweaty Marlon Brando quoting T.S. Eliot particularly compelling, but it was better than watching The English Patient. So, you know, there's that. We'll probably have to talk about The English Patient at some point, too. Before I start yelling more of my face pinions, RJ, uh, I believe you were going to tell us how other people felt about it. Yeah, so
1: while Conrad the man... Mm. Didn't have many friends or supporters. <laughs> when it came to people and his literature, you have people like F. Scott Fitzgerald crediting Conrad for, quote, conjuring up the general out of the particular.
0: Yeah, another guy who wrote a book about how people are just sort of empty and terrible. Right.
1: Other authors, in particular other American authors who acknowledge their debt to Conrad uh, include William Faulkner, William Burroughs, Saul Bellow, Philip Roth, Joan Didion, and... Thomas Pynchon.
0: Wow, okay, you know what? This is all starting to make sense because I hate, like, two-thirds of those writers. I like Joan Didion. Um, Oh, yeah? Yeah, no, I don't like Thomas Pynchon. I despise Philip Roth, but that's another story for another day. Um, Anti-Semitic. No, it has nothing to do with anything. He's a misogynistic fucking writer. But Burroughs, that actually does make sense because for anyone who's ever had to suffer through Naked Lunch, where he talks about different, like, There's outer... two things
1: wrong with that title. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that he has to... That his character travels through different zones and stations where society deteriorates a bit each time. So when you bring up these writers, Conrad's influence on them is pretty apparent, in that they are all also deeply cynical and nihil- nihilistic.
1: Despite... The authors who feel they owe a debt to Joseph Conrad. Oh, no, what class alum? Cheno Achebe published an essay entitled An Image of Africa, Racism in Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which was a very controversial essay basically saying that Heart of Darkness, it shouldn't be considered a great work. It's a novel that, quote, celebrates dehumanizes, and depersonalizes a portion of the human race. And he refers to Conrad as a, quote, talented, tormented man. He basically says, Marlowe is Conrad and vice versa. And so that that's the problem with the work. Achebe has a number of supporters who support that point of view. And there's also a lot of critics who say Achebe's reading is a little too simplistic and there's a lot more going on.
0: I'm with Achebe on the fact that, yes, i know I will complain all the times about how people will associate the narrator or main character of a novel with the writer to the point where, you know it's it's dumb or they're making bad arguments. But Marlowe and Conrad seem pretty inextricable. They're both outsiders. They have a disdain for imperialism and Englishness, and they rode a boat down the Congo. They really can only express the emotions of criticism, skepticism, and being deeply ironic. The sense of, like, sort of detachment and this thing of, like, y'all are bad, and I'm not, because I'm just sort of here. I think you can make a case that he's just, it's pretty much just Conrad.
1: Yeah, but then you can make the argument that in his own mind, and maybe in the writing as well, that what he's doing is that he's showing a Brit who has arguably this similar biography to this Polish guy over here. And because this Brit's over here with British exceptionalism thinking they're so awesome, look at what they think of the world and what they're doing to the world.
0: Marlowe never embodies that sense of British exceptionalism. I mean, we even have that in the very beginning when he visits his aunt and his aunt's like, yeah, you go out there, you convert them natives. And he's just like, no, that's dumb. But
1: that but so that even though he doesn't want to see the world that way, he sees the world that way, like despite even wanting to not want to be imperialist, despite that he still sees it through imperialist eyes. And so he's a white guy going into the dark continent. And this is what he sees of it.
0: It's possible to decry white col- colonial col- Colonialism? And be anti-imperialist and still not be able to describe Africans as like, you know, people? And have good intentions and just dehumanize the people that you're trying to sympathize with? Because there's this aura of like, we are just as bad as them. And also, gosh, we're just bad people subjugating these feral ass animal people that just don't know any better. We, we have been brought low by Africa. You know, we have this sort of the sentiment that Kurtz, as terrible as he is, at least, to be fair, according to Marlow, deserves sympathy. And that it was Africa that ruined him. And that everybody, it's like I said, everybody's just like a victim of Africa, including the Africans who were there. And they're not victims of Africa. They're victims of the dudes coming in and doing the bad things.
1: You're basically saying someone who grew up a serf in an imperialist nation doesn't realize the problem with imperialism No, growing up a serf.
0: That's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> he clearly very much understands imperialism and viciously attacks it. I'm saying it's possible to be anti-imperialist and recognize the damage that is and still be racist because you don't know how to talk about people that aren't white as, as human and having human qualities. But then why would
1: he write the novel if he doesn't see it as a tragedy?
0: Because he sees it as a tragedy of Kurtz, that here is this man who everyone was claiming was like a genius and all this great stuff, and imperialism sent him into the jungle where he had no business being and it turned him into a monster. That it's not Kurtz's fault, it's Africa's and by extension England's fault because English imperialism sent Kurtz into Africa where Africa made him crazy and into a murder man. Is it you? you follow you following my lead here?
1: I mean, since see, I, I gotta like play the opposite man here.
0: You don't have to. I yeah, mean, you never even read the fucking <laughs> book, so you you don't have to play devil's advocate.
1: Hi, that's my favorite pinball game. <laughs> 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 yeah, hey. Play devil's yeah. advocate. <laughs> God damn Excuse me, you, March. When I go, oh, I gotta play devil's advocate.
0: <laughs> that's a Deep Simpsons reference. You
1: know that you're saying, oh, well, Morrow's kind of milk toast. And so you got this guy writing this serial for British people to buy, and we know he's political that he eventually, you know, tries to convince these people to help free Poland. Colonization's going on, right? And maybe it's kinda of like dreamlike to them that it's one of those things you hear about, right? We got those colonies there and we kinda know what's going on, but we don't wanna really think about what's going on and so instead of having a narrator who's going to judge one way or another you hold up a mirror as to hey we're putting heads on sticks on the side of the rivers that's not what you're seeing over there in london but this is what our people are doing elsewhere in the world See,
0: but it's it's not even that the heads on the sticks, because it's the heads on the sticks, oh, we're supposed to feel bad that Kurtz has turned into this kind of person who would put heads on the sticks. The natives are there to be props, not for people to actually, like, have feelings about and treat as people. They're props to the story, and I think that's why Achebe has such a big problem with this. he's Like he said, he doesn't say that Conrad is just like weird, fucked up racist dude just writing, you know, he's not the one saying exterminate the brutes, but that he can't see them as people because they're just sort of symbolic devices used to prop up his narrative. I admit, knowing more of Conrad's biography and and having to acknowledge him as a person does make me my my feelings towards the book slightly more complex than just being like it fucking sucks and i hate him. I still think it's not that good though. Even if you want to ignore racism and things like that which like in the sen- in the general sense no, we 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 shouldn't. We should be like socially responsible readers, but whatever. Is the book objectively good or bad? Marlowe is a static and boring character and Things just kind of happen, and the the dreamlike quality is, just creates this sort of disconnected feeling where it just doesn't create a sense of investment in what you're reading. At least, that's how I felt when I read it. Three times. In the time that I could spend like, trying to analyze it for meaning, I could also spend doing way more enjoyable stuff. Like going to the beach, or playing Breath of the Wild, or repeatedly stepping on multiple rusty nails. So yes, that's my that's my end of opinion. I guess we're not doing the good or bad because it's it's pretty clear. It's pretty good. <laughs> I guess there's no point in asking you because you didn't read the book. And this I know you, the you, plot <laughs> now. I
1: have Megan's marvelous summation. Yes. Yeah, it's like I read it. It's go. like I was. It's like I was there on the Congoese River. Yep. In Congo itself.
0: Uh huh. So that's part of darkness. That's our our whole screed. Your screed. Yeah. Well, your screed about the amount of poop that may or may not have existed within John Wayne upon his death. Uh, so that'll about do it for this episode of Odo La Class. If you, uh If you want more of this, if you enjoy it, thank you. We love you. Consider showing your love for us by... Rating and reviewing us on iTunes by subscribing. You could also like us on Facebook. You could join the Facebook group and participate in the lawless uh, literary meme landscape that it's currently embroiled in. It's fun times, actually. You could follow us on Twitter at Pod And you can listen to us anywhere, everywhere, all the time at onolickclass.com and on the Brain Trust Brothers Network, along with shows like Play Comics, Field of Screams, and The Pyramid. Buy our clothes at Tea Public. Not just clothes, but also, like, stickers and, and bags and pillows and whatever your weird little hearts desire. Buy them. Put them on you. Have them about your person. Think of us while you do. This week's pod pal is actually someone we already know. It's Our Strange Skies, hosted by Rob, don't call him Chris, Christopherson. A couple months ago, we played a promo for his upcoming show, and it now it's, it's here. It's been coming. Oh god, Rob, I'm sorry. It's an awesome show full of really cool and interesting information on UFOs and history, and it's still like entertaining and accessible if you don't know anything about that stuff, like me. Also, Rob's going to tell you not to lick UFOs, but you know what? He's not the boss of you. Live your life. Chase your bliss. Check out his show.
1: What's up, UFOnauts? It's your UFO guy, Rob Kristofferson.
0: Have you ever been curious about the UFO phenomenon, but unsure of where to start? Have you ever wondered about just what crashed at Roswell? Have you ever wanted common sense advice about licking UFOs? The answers don't.
1: Then check out the Our Strange Skies podcast, where we dive into America's rich UFO history and uncover what these sightings say about ourselves. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and most podcast apps, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In gray we
0: trust. Thank you to Best Day for the use of his song as our intro. The next episode will be on April 12th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye.
1: Took it from the children elephants. Not just the men elephants, the- but the the women and children. No, you fucked up <laughs> that joke and now it just sounds like you had a stroke. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit BrainTrustBros.com.